basically. Let's go around the horn, and I'll assume if you give me a go, you've got no instrumentation problems. Booster? Go flight. Retro? Go flight. Fighter? Go flight. Control? Telcom? Go. TNC? Econ? Capcom? Go. Surgeon? Go. OMP? Go. AFC? RAO? Go. Network? Go. You got everything up? Hello, I'm Ian Christie, and this is Terranauts. When we left the Gemini program, it was December the 15th, 1965, and Wally Schirra and Tom Stafford were aboard the Gemini 6 capsule on their way to orbit. Finally. After two launch attempts that went literally nowhere, the two U.S. astronauts were finally on their way to orbit and a date with Destiny. Over the next few hours, Shira and Stafford were going to attempt something that had never been done before, because as their Gemini booster pushed them relentlessly towards orbit, they were not alone. For one of the very few times in the history of humanity's journey off the planet, Shira and Stafford were not the only humans that were actually not on the planet. That's because Jim Lovell and Frank Borman were already there, in their Gemini 7 spacecraft. They had actually been there for more than a week, actually almost two weeks. They had, of course, been executing their own flight plan, designed to prove that humans could live and work in space, actually a very small space in space, for up to two weeks at a time. Uh, that was all well and good, of course, but let's face it, their two weeks was more of an endurance test than an action-packed trip around the planet. The main event of their flight was the next 24 hours in which they would effectively get to literally see a friendly pair of faces on orbit. Because even though they would not be able to physically shake hands, Lovell and Borman were going to have company, and that company was very much on the way. All of which is a long-winded way of saying that NASA was about to attempt to bring the Gemini 6 and Gemini 7 spacecraft together on orbit. Now, this, by this I don't mean that the spacecraft were actually going to physically touch, but they were going to get close enough for the crews to see one another. And maybe more to the point, they were going to spend several orbits circling the Earth flying together in formation. And this was a feat that had never been accomplished before. In fact, it had never really even been attempted before. Now, back in 1962... The Soviets had put two spacecraft in orbit at the same time during the Vostok 3 and 4 missions. But although uh, Andran Nikolaev and Papo Popovich had been launched into very similar orbits, and although they had approached each other closely uh, enough that the spacecraft were visible from one another, they actually never got closer than six and a half kilometers, and their single encounter was pretty brief. In fact, brief enough to be described as uh, momentary, really. So Vostok 3 and 4, despite what was said, or at least strongly implied at the time, did not represent a true spacecraft rendezvous. In fact, since neither Vostok spacecraft had the capacity to maneuver in orbit in any way, it was really just a case of two spacecraft literally uh, passing each other in the night. This was entirely different from what NASA was about to attempt, which was to actively maneuver one spacecraft to approach close with and keep station on another spacecraft while orbiting the Earth. 
So even though the spacecraft uh, would both be going around the planet at a speed of more than 30,000 kilometers an hour, they would be stationary with respect to one another. Now, as we have discussed a few times before, the road to this encounter had been fraught, fraught with not a few false starts. Leaving aside the two times that Shira and Stafford had failed to get off the launch pad in the last couple of months, the whole exercise of piloting a spacecraft to meet up with another object on orbit uh, had been the cause of some concern for NASA for a while. As a reminder, part of the reason for that concern was that the planned Apollo mission to the moon was going to require at least two rendezvous operations, which would be critical not only to the success of the mission, but um, also to the survival of the crew. Also, as a reminder, NASA astronauts and NASA ground controllers had been um, experimenting with rendezvous since the very first Gemini flights. This started out almost informally when astronauts on orbit would turn their capsule around after separation from their booster and try to see um, their spent booster and then move towards it and keep station on it. And those very first experiments were only semi-serious at first, until, that is, the simple maneuver proved to be almost ridiculously difficult to perform. I mean, the first attempt at accomplishing a task that was, for an experienced fighter pilot, which all of the astronauts were, um, had ended in complete failure, with all attempts to move towards the booster effectively ending with the booster farther away, and often seemingly in random directions. So, after that experience, things got a bit more serious, some serious thought not, uh, went not only into the physics of the problem, but also into the procedures that were necessary to solve it. So much effort, in fact, that astronaut Buzz Aldrin had actually written a PhD thesis on the topic. Over the past few months, um, flight controllers and astronauts alike had spent a lot of time relearning the process of forming up in space and in retraining their reactions in simulators. Wally Shira and Tom Stafford had received more of this training than any other crew, but all of the astronauts had been learning the craft of on-orbit maneuvering, a point which was made conclusively early in the Gemini 7 flight when Jim Lovell had been able to successfully uh, move and keep station on his spent second stage after separation. It was a good omen for the main event that was now getting underway. Now, we have spent a bit of time in this podcast talking about on-orbit rendezvous and how it is, well, um, just plain weird. But, spoiler alert, we're not done yet. As you will recall, we have talked about the fact that in-orbit rendezvous is weird because it is happening, well, in orbit. This means that you are trying to catch up and fly formation on an object when you are both literally flying in circles around the Earth. And while it might seem like that shouldn't make a difference, it actually makes all of the difference in the world, or around the world, I guess. Physicists would explain the difference by telling you that being in orbit means that you are in an accelerated frame of reference, as opposed to an inertial frame of reference. Which sounds really smart, um, but what does it actually mean? Well... Simply, uh, we're used to working out problems of motion, like how to walk or drive somewhere, or how to catch a ball, or even fly an airplane towards another airplane or an object on the ground, in an environment where we effectively uh, can control, or at least account for, all of the forces or factors that are in play. 
We can control how we move, either directly or via the controls in our vehicle. And even though gravity is actually acting on us and the other objects in our world, we're all experiencing the same force, and it's pretty much consistent, so we can kind of average it out. And what we get is a problem where things move in a predictable fashion, and with a little experience, we can learn to predict our movement and the movement of other objects. In an accelerated frame of reference, forces are not actually constant in the same way, and forces that act on other objects act on them in ways that they don't act on us. And this is because, again, we are going around in a circle, and going in a circle means that our direction of travel is actually constantly changing, right? Because as we go around the circle, we don't just move forward, we move forward and then a little bit towards the center of the circle, and that's why we go around. And if that didn't happen, we'd go in a straight line, and we'd get farther and farther away from the Earth. The issue is that from where we are in orbit, we have no way to actually know this. Because if our whole frame of reference is the thing that changes, because it's the thing that's going around Earth, it feels to us like we're going in a straight line, or even standing still. So as long as we are interacting with objects that are close to us, that are in that same frame of reference, this doesn't matter much. We can move in straight lines, we can toss a ball back and forth, as you've no doubt seen astronauts do. The one difference is that we feel weightless because our little frame of reference is constantly in free fall in the Earth's gravity, so we don't actually feel the gravity anymore. Things get complicated, however, when we start trying to interact with objects that are not close to us, because they're not experiencing the same force as we are. So think about it. Another spacecraft on the other side of the planet is still moving towards the planet, but that direction is actually the opposite to the direction we're being accelerated. In fact, even a spacecraft that's a few kilometers ahead of us is being pulled in a slightly different direction than we are, and that direction is constantly changing. And that is the fact that makes the physics weird. If we can stand outside the system and watch it, things actually do make sense if we know what to look for. But from the inside, from within that frame of reference that's going around the Earth, Things just don't work the way they're supposed to anymore. We already talked about one artifact of this effect, and that's the whole speed up to slow down, slow down to speed up thing. In other words, if we're behind our target, the way to catch up with it is, with it is actually to slow down a little, because this will mean that the Earth's gravity will pull us in a little closer, and then even though we're moving through space a little slower, we're actually in a situation where it takes us less time to get around the planet, and since our position over the surface of the planet is the way we kind of judge our motion, we actually seem to be going faster. And since our target is still going around the planet at the same rate, we'll start to catch up to it. When we get close to the target and we want to slow down, we reverse the process. We'll speed up, which will push us up, which will make our orbital speed lower, so we'll appear to slow down and approach the target. Eventually, if we arrange it right, when we're in exactly the same orbit as our target, we will match its speed. As I said, that part is weird enough. But there's another process that is even weirder, maybe. And that is the fact that none of this actually happens in real time. Uh, no, in space, you not only have to think backwards in space, but you have to think forwards in time. Yes, that's right. 
in space, unlike on the ground, when you make a change, the full effect actually develops over time. So even after you have stopped making the change, you keep seeing and feeling the effect of it, often for a long time, like minutes or hours. So um, let's try to understand why that would be true. So for instance, let's say you're following another spacecraft. The target is in a circular orbit, so are you. The target's orbit is higher than yours, though, so you're catching up to it. Now you want to slow down the rate of closure a bit, so what do you do? Well, because we know that we need to think backwards, you want to speed up to slow down your rate of closure. Because we know now that speeding up will increase your orbital radius. But of course, you can't just make your orbit change instantaneously to a larger circular orbit. So what does actually happen when you speed up? Well, if you could step outside your frame of reference and look down on the situation from above, you would see that after you do your burn to speed up, your speed actually begins to increase and your distance from the planet would in fact to start to increase gradually. In fact, the distance would continue to increase until you were half an orbit away from where you completed your burn. But then a funny thing would happen. Your radius would start to decrease again until, in fact, by the time you're back to where your original burn location was, you're back to your original radius. So, in fact, your burn did not put you in a larger circular orbit. Instead, it actually changed your orbit from a circle into an ellipse, with the highest point of the ellipse, the apoapsis, exactly half an orbit away from your burn location, which is now the lowest point of the orbit, the periapsis. If, in fact, you want to be in a circular orbit again, you would need to wait until the apoapsis, half an orbit away, and then burn again, which would raise your periapsis up to the level of the apoapsis, and you'd be in a circle again. So, if we were watching our target ahead and above us, uh, what we would see after we did our burn was that our rate of closure would start to slow, and we would have floated up towards the target for half an orbit, but then we would have dropped back down and our rate of closure would have increased again. So you can see how this adds another dimension to the whole problem. This is because even though we only made one fairly short burn, the impact of that burn is felt over the course of the whole orbit. And for most of that time, we're not doing anything. But things are consistently changing and in a very um, non-linear way. Now, the reasons for what is happening are obvious if we stand outside and watch it all from above, but from inside the spacecraft, it would not be obvious at all. Which again makes the whole process uh, very counterintuitive, which is why this whole process just can't be done by the seat of your pants. So maybe let's take a look at how the process of the rendezvous actually worked for Gemini 6 and Gemini 7 as an example. When Gemini 6a launched, Gemini 7 was roughly in a circular orbit uh, at around 300 kilometers from the Earth. As they launched, Shira and Stafford and the flight controllers in mission control expected that they would rendezvous with Lovell and Borman during about the fourth orbit of the planet, so about six hours later. When it separated from its booster over the Canary Islands, Gemini 6a was still rising, having been inserted into an elliptical orbit that peaked over the Indian Ocean at around 260 kilometers and dipped down to a perigee over the middle of the United States at about 160 kilometers. So 
though as you would expect, since it was in a lower orbit, Gemini 6 was trailing Gemini 7 by about 2,000 kilometers, in fact. At the first perigee, over New Orleans, Gemini 6 had made up more than 800 kilometers of that separation, and it was time to start slowing the rate of convergence a little. So, Wally Schirra did a short burn that sped Gemini 6 up by just 4 meters per second, but raised their apogee, half a world away, to around 275 kilometers from 260. Half an orbit later, as they approached the new apogee over Carnarvon, Australia, it was time to really start slowing down, so Shira added another 19 meters per second velocity, and this had the effect of raising the perigee over the U.S. to around 200 kilometers. Uh, the resulting rate of closure meant that when Gemini 6 arrived over Carnarvon on the next orbit, the distance had continued to close, but now much more slowly. By this time, Shira and Stafford had a solid radar lock on Gemini 7, and they could see it was about 320 kilometers ahead, and still slightly above them. Another adjustment here, at the apogee of the orbit, of about 13 meters per second raised the perigee so that Gemini 6's orbit was now nearly circular at 275 kilometers, which was still 25 kilometers below Gemini 7. A bit more than half an orbit later, the crew of Gemini 6 got the first glimpse of their target as Gemini 7, still 100 kilometers away, briefly appeared as a bright star as it caught the reflected light of the sun. Because they were still lower than Gemini 7, they were slowly catching up, but uh, with visual contact established, the rendezvous entered its final phase. And now Sharaf flew the final phase of the rendezvous basically by eye but it still consisted of discrete impulses rather than a continuous series of maneuvers. Seen from above the orbit, um, these maneuvers, maneuvers basically would have looked like the final fine adjustments of Gemini 6's orbit to raise its highest point up to 300 kilometers, which was equivalent to Gemini 7's orbit, and then at exactly the right moment to once again circularize the orbit at this point. On board, this would have looked like incrementally slowing the approach speed of the two spacecraft, and then just at the right moment, killing that relative velocity completely. And at that moment, the two spacecraft would be in the same orbit, and not only that, they would be at the same place in that orbit, and the very first rendezvous between man-made objects in space had been achieved. It's hard for us, 60 years later, and in possession of the knowledge of what NASA would achieve in the next few years, to really appreciate how big a deal this rendezvous was. I mean, this really was a major milestone, as much because it was not just a technological or engineering achievement. The rendezvous of Gemini 6 and 7 was truly an achievement of the whole NASA organization. As we have already seen, just getting two spacecraft on orbit at the same time from the same launch pad required a spacecraft launch processing team that was truly operating at the highest level and which could take even very significant contingencies in stride and keep moving forward. The rendezvous itself certainly required very significant engineering expertise. The Gemini 6 crew would later comment in amazement at how fine the control uh, the on-orbit maneuvering system provided them. Um, the advances in computing technology that supported uh, this particular event should also not be overlooked. Because we now have the tools to literally model and then visualize 
the orbital mechanical gyrations that Gemini 6 and Gemini 7 went through to arrive at the same place at the same time and stay there. To some extent, um, this masks just how much math is actually required to get it right. Performing that math literally in real time, uh, meaning at a rate where it could actually be used to maneuver the spacecraft, was essential to the rendezvous process, as we have been discussing. And it was very much a mathematical process, not a matter of great piloting. That level of computing power was quite literally at the cutting edge of technology at the time. But even with all of the technological support, the first rendezvous really did, not, did depend on having a flight planning and control organization and a flight crew on orbit that understood the problem. And that's the really important thing. It was a problem that could not truly be solved, even in simulation, except by going to space and trying it. It was simply not possible to create the situation on Earth. Solving the problem had required the whole team to go to space, at least in their minds, long before the spacecraft ever went there. Based on what they knew, or thought they knew, they could create simulations on the ground to practice, but those sims were really pale shadows of the real thing. It was not until they tried it for the very first time that anyone in the whole process knew how Rendezvous was going to work, or maybe not. And to me, that makes this a truly Terranauts kind of moment, because the rendezvous of those two spacecraft really was a task that required a whole lot of talented people to solve a whole host of problems in space. I mean, even though there would only be four humans actually in orbit when the problem was solved, literally hundreds or even thousands had to be there with them for this to work. The flight control team certainly appreciated how big a deal it was. Before the shift, the rendezvous Fido, Jerry Bostick, had handed out small paper American flags to all of the flight controllers. Now, although this would become a bit of a tradition in the Mission Control Center, this first batch had actually um, been sourced from local funeral homes where they were used to attach to vehicles and funeral processions. When the rendezvous was accomplished, all of the flight controllers pulled out their flags and waved them madly as they cheered. And this points out another fact about the environment in 1965 that's a little bit hard for us to appreciate 60 years later. 1965 was very much the height of the Cold War, and NASA was very much a product of that conflict. NASA had been founded to play strategic catch-up with the Soviet Union in space. Now, by 1965, it is clear with hindsight that NASA had not only caught up with the Soviet space program, but had actually pretty comfortably surpassed it. More than that, while the Soviet program mired itself in bureaucratic infighting and competing agendas, NASA had put itself on a trajectory that was accelerating not only to orbit around the Earth, but beyond Earth orbit and towards the Moon. This fact, though, was not at all obvious to the flight controllers in MCC. At the time, in NASA, there was still very much a feeling that they were catching up to the Russians, who, until the past year, had arguably held most of the major space records. There was a very real sense at NASA that the rendezvous of Gemini 6 and Gemini 7 was an achievement that the Soviets could not match. In fact, NASA flight controllers and the flight, con flight crew 
took a great deal of satisfaction from the fact that it was an achievement that the Soviets had tried to claim based on the performance of Vostok 3 and 4, but which now, more than ever, it was clear they had not. As Wally Shira said, quote, Somebody said, um, when you come within three miles, like five kilometers, you've rendezvoused. If anyone thinks they've pulled a rendezvous off at three miles, have fun. This is when we started doing our work. I don't think rendezvous is over until you're stopped, completely stopped, with no relative motion between the two vehicles at a range of, I don't know, 120 feet. That's rendezvous. From there, it's station keeping. That's when you can go back and play the game of driving a car or driving an airplane or pushing a skateboard. It's about that simple. Unquote. And that's from uh, Hacker and Grimwood uh, on the shoulders of Titans. So while it's easy for us to see that moment in late 1965, as just another milestone on NASA's road to the moon, it was much more than that to the people involved at the time. And truthfully, I think it was a bit more than that in the grand scheme of things as well. And this, by the way, is why I have spent a fair bit of time getting here. I really did not want to rush it because I really do think that it represents a very particular accomplishment and maybe one that the participants didn't even fully recognize at the time. For me, the rendezvous of Gemini 6A and Gemini 7 and the journey that was required to get there really did mark a moment in time when NASA demonstrated that it was an organization really the likes of which had never existed before. We're so used to having a world in which we go to space, do work there, live there, that we no longer think of being able to accomplish those things as kind of noteworthy. But in 1965, doing anything beyond simply getting up to orbit and getting down again safely truly was something novel. Gemini 76 was not only a technical achievement, it was also the start of something new, of doing things in space. Of space not just as a place where we visit briefly just to say we went, like the summit of Mount Everest or something, but as an actual destination, a place in which and from which to do things. And in 1965, NASA was the only organization in the world, or that had ever existed in the world, that could do that. Now, having uh, established that we could rendezvous two spacecraft in orbit, the first thing that needed to be done was kind of experiment with that newfound skill of the formation flying. As we've said before, formation flying was a skill with which most of the astronauts were more than familiar, uh, but doing it in orbit was certainly a novelty. The good news was that Shira and Stafford had lots of gas in the tank with which to experiment, having spent less than 40% of their fuel to accomplish the rendezvous, performance which, frankly, exceeded most expectations. Now, because Gemini 7 was running much closer to the line in terms of fuel available, Gemini 6 did the bulk of the maneuvering, for more than four hours, the two crews experimented with the newfound experience of being able to see and examine another spacecraft on orbit. Uh, remember, in those days, uh, there were no external cameras. The only time anyone had ever seen a Gemini capsule in its natural environment uh, in space uh, was when Ed White um, got out of the, the spacecraft and did his EVA. Both crews, for instance, noted that their spacecraft on orbit were far from clean being trailed by a collection of cords and stringers that trailed and flapped up to five meters behind the spacecraft. Shira and Stafford took turns controlling their spacecraft from their respective seats as they flew around Lovell and Borman. 
flying out to as far as 90 meters away at one point and then approaching to within 0.3 meters, or basically one foot away. They flew beside each other, they flew nose to nose and nose to tail, and pretty much anything in between. They proved that they could fly stable in, in formation going at one point more than 20 minutes without any steering inputs by any of the crew, while maintaining an absolutely stable relationship to one another. They kept stationed in daylight and in night. At night, the crews discovered that they could not only see each other's docking lights, which had been installed for that purpose, but they could also see clearly each other's cabin lights and even the handheld pen lights that they used. Shiraz and Stafford were both impressed with the very fine control they were able to exert using the on-orbit maneuvering system, as I said. They were able to prove that they could achieve velocity changes of as little as a few centimeters per second, which convinced them that actual docking and mating maneuvers would not really present any significant difficulties when they were attempted. Finally, as the end of the crew day approached, Gemini 6A pulled back and settled into a position 16 kilometers away, at that distance, the spacecraft were easily visible on radar and occasionally visible to the naked eye when the sun caught them exactly right, causing Frank Mormon to comment to the Rosenot Victor communicator in the middle of the Pacific, Well, we have company tonight. Shaw and Stafford were utterly exhausted and hungry, having spent a very full day first catching up to Gemini 7 and then flying with it for more than three orbits of the Earth. They ate a good meal and had no trouble getting to sleep. When they awoke, it was basically time to come home. There was nothing more left to accomplish for the Gemini 6A, and flight controllers were anxious to shift their focus back to Gemini 7 as a few niggling anomalies were starting to rise that might actually keep the mission from running to its full duration, and they wanted some time to look at those. So, shortly after the crew day started, Shara flipped the capsule to its inverted um, heads-down orientation and jettisoned the equipment section, which automatically started the retrofire sequence. As they entered the atmosphere, Sherat changed the pitch angle of the spacecraft to 55 degrees, which provided maximum lift as it entered the atmosphere, at approximately 85,000 meters in altitude, with the capsule well and truly in the atmosphere, the guidance computer took control. Using real-time telemetry, the computer began yawing the capsule left and right as it sensed the need to reduce the lift and because the trajectory was going a little bit long. And as a capstone to a couple of days of precision flying, the computer did its job very well. When the crew eventually deployed the drogue and then the main parachutes, they brought the Gemini to Earth less than 15 kilometers from their planned landing site, and in fact, so close to the carrier, USS Wasp, that the event was captured for the very first time, live on television, and broadcast around the world, via satellite, of course which was another first. And that, I think, is where we're going to leave it today. Next time on Terranauts, we'll actually get Jim Lovell and Frank Borman home from their space odyssey, and we'll also take a look at the state of space at the end of the year 1965. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you again soon. Come on, let's keep the chatter down.